0: Are you troubled by strange noises in the night? Do you experience
1: feelings of dread in your basement or attic?
0: Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh.
2: Did you want
0: to? Sorry, sorry. I'll, let you. I'll let you. Next time.
3: Welcome to Radio Free Goes Area, hosted by Jay Smith.
1: And with me are four people to discuss Ghostbusters 2016 and Ghostbusters the Franchise. She's a rainbow unicorn, a USA Today bestselling author. Her latest works include uh, the Penthouse Prince and the Odd Stuff series. Please welcome Virginia Nelson. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi, Virginia. Hello. Scott A. Johnson is a horror author, educator, and paranormal investigator. He's the author of An American Haunting, Haunted Austin, Texas, and The Ghosts of San Antonio. Say hi, Scott.
0: Hi, Scott. Oh, I mean, hi. I'm Scott.
1: Chris Phillips is a writer whose work appears in IGMS, issues 48 and 52, Apex Magazine, Penumbra, EMAG, and elsewhere. He is also managing editor at Flash Fiction Online. You can visit him online at chrisphillipsauthor.com. Hi, Chris. Hello. And finally, best-selling author of more than 80 novels, Heather Long loves comics and has been a longtime Ghostbusters fan. Recent releases include Snow Wolf from her Wolves of the Willow Bend series and The Judas Contract from her Boomers series. How you doing, Heather? I'm good. How are you? Uh, now that we've got our technical issues sorted out, I'm great. I can relax and I don't have to go through this for our next section. So thank you all for joining me for this. Uh, we're going to discuss the new movie. And... But before we get into the actual 2016 movie, let's talk a little bit about why we're here. Clearly, Ghostbusters as a franchise means something to us. Uh, I want to go around the room. What does it mean to you, and when did you first see it? Let's start with roll 2D6. Chris Phillips. (laughs) Chris, how are
4: you? I am good. So what was the question? Uh, When did I first see the movie? Yeah. Um, it came out in eighty four, or I was born in eighty two, so I'm oh I have God, no idea. Baby. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I know. I first saw it when my parents rented a VCR from the Blockbuster. Wow! And it was
3: I, I feel so 89. old.
4: <laughs> I think eighty nine was when the second one came out. Yep. So mm. I saw the second one in the theater. So I'm guessing like eighty eight. So I was very young when I saw it, and I was scared to death of it. Oh, yeah? What scared you about Ghostbusters? Like, everything. I didn't know it was a comedy until, like, years later. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, it was hilarious. Um, So, I I, I had a very kind of weird relationship with this movie. Um, And so, like, I I watched it, like, just, you know, as, as kids do, to kind of just scare themselves. And, you know, it was a lot of fun that way. But then, you know, it kind of, as my sense of humor developed, if You can call it that. I, you know, I grew to, to love the movie. I'm kind of a different level, and so I guess that's where I'm coming from with it. It's kind Mm. of
1: different. And what is it? How has that informed your writing or your career or your uh, beyond your sense of humor? What what has it uh, had an impact on your life?
4: Well, really, I mean, it's it's well, hands down, one of my like top five favorite movies i mean it's i consider it the perfect movie in many ways i just love everything about it um just the dry humor the uh, just i i i can watch it again and still like find new things to laugh at you know and that's okay. that's just remarkable after all these years i think
1: okay uh, heather we'll just go around the horn uh it says you're a longtime ghostbusters fan when was the first time you saw the film I saw it in 1984 when it came out on opening weekend when I was 12. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: why I was laughing at what he said. I'm going, oh, I feel so old. Um, yeah, I saw it opening weekend mostly because uh, I'd seen all the ads for it, and it looked funny, and I loved Saturday Night Live back then, and, and I was a huge Dan Aykroyd fan and a huge Bill Murray fan, and I wanted to see the movie, and I loved the movie, and I watched it, I think, like eight times in the theater.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's exactly my experience, so I don't have to repeat you. That's great. Did you, did you see it by yourself? Because I remember back in the day, we could go out free range, you know, by ourselves without our helicopter parents and watch these movies. <laughs> well, let's
2: see. The The first movie I ever saw in the theater was in 77. I saw Star Wars. And then, let's see, by 84, we had already done, yeah, the summer before that had been the summer Return of the Jedi came out. And I saw that like 300 and some odd times in the theater, and my mother stopped going to movies with me. Because... <laughs> I, I, I made friends with all the people who ran our, th- our movie theater to the point that I would help them clean up if they let me watch movies. Wow. Yeah, well, cool. 300 times I couldn't afford that. But even for a $2 movie back then, that was a lot of money. But uh, <laughs> no, I, did, I don't think I did friends when I saw it when I was 12 I don't think my mother went and saw it because she was just oh that's stupid humor I don't want to see that and I am like okay that's fine and the sliming scenes would probably have grossed her out but mm-hmm. I thought they were hysterical you know the, the scariest thing in that whole movie for me were the, when they did the demon dog when they were hunting Rick oh. Moranis's character oh yeah, um, that, that, that actually I will admit that, that part freaked me out a little bit because I'm like okay yeah if I saw that waiting for me in the closet yeah I'd be running too <laughs> true mm-hmm
1: and how's that Im- influenced your uh, fiction or your your career since then um
2: i don't know i think for me the biggest thing is that uh a lot of the movies from that same time period all had a lot of humor in them so no matter how scary or how intense or how romantic or anything that i'm writing i have to have humor in my stories cuz yeah, i want you to laugh i want to laugh when i'm watching stuff mm-hmm. uh And I think that's, I think it makes it, I'm saying uh, a lot. My daughter's probably going to shoot me later. She hates it when I say um. The the biggest thing for me from all of that, even when you're doing, whether it's straight comedy or being very, very serious, if you don't have laughter in it, I'm probably not going to like it.
1: Okay. Mm -hmm. Ms. Nelson, how about you?
5: Uh, I didn't get to see the movie until, because my mom was anti-movie theaters, so the first time I saw the movie, of course, was when it released on home box office, as one does. Um, <laughs> I, I, The thing that stuck with me as a kid with the movie is kind of stupid, uh, but I was terrified of... Uh, The Statue of Liberty chasing me, I'd have nightmares like nightly to this day. My mom will get me like little posters or pictures of the Statue of Liberty because she thought it was hilarious that young (laughs) me was afraid of the movie. But I wasn't afraid of the movie. It was more my imagination of a creature that big coming after you, even though that was the good guys. It was still in my head that, for some reason, that was really scary. And it really awakened my imagination in storytelling because I took something from a story and made it real to me, if that makes sense.
1: I have to ask, what did your mom have against movie theaters?
5: She finds them scary and too expensive, and to this day, she refuses to go to movies in the theater. So little girl me was so thrilled to get to see Ghostbusters in the theaters this time. I was like, I'm going to the release day. (laughs) I'm going to be there. So, yeah, little kid me was, like, cheering.
1: Okay. And finally, Scott Johnson, you are a paranormal investigator. Did this movie have any influence on that life choice for you, or...?
0: The year was 1984.
3: <laughs>
0: uh, I was 13 years old when the original Ghostbusters came out. Um, but I should preface that by saying that the first movie that I saw by myself in the movie theater was 1982's Poltergeist. And I was 11 years old.
2: Ooh.
4: Uh,
0: nice. Yeah. And, um, you know, I grew up in a town that was full of ghost stories, and several of them are about my own family. So. <laughs> And uh, when I saw the original Ghostbusters, I knew that uh, Dan Aykroyd had actually based the character of Ray Stantz on his brother, who is a paranormal investigator. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: So to me, when the original Ghostbusters came out, it was a revelation that this was something that someone could actually do. And I, I'm not going to lie, at 13 years old, I was wanting to build my own proton pack and ghost traps and all of that. But it influenced me in the sense that it showed me where that fine line between horror and humor exists and that they are very much related as far as on the emotional spectrum. So, and I mean, and it influenced me even more. It influenced me as a father, actually, because uh, when when my kids were young enough that they feared the closet monster, and I actually had a ghost trap. And I don't know if you remember these, but they're the ones with the little squeeze thing that you step on, and then it popped open.
3: Mm -hmm. I had one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I would go into my kid's room, my daughter's rooms, and make a big show out of Daddy's Got a Ghost Trap, and I'd throw it in the closet and trap whatever closet monster was hiding in there or under their bed or whatever.
2: You are such and, a cool dad. Oh, you well,
0: know, I try to be. But Ghostbusters, to me, Race Dance was always one of my heroes. You know, Egon Spengler was a little too out of reach for me. Peter Venkman was just the guy that I wanted to strangle but I couldn't help but like him for some reason. And, uh, you know, Winston Zeddemore, I always thought he was painfully under, underappreciated in the Ghostbusters. So.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just thought that it was interesting, the, the way that those characters were put together, it made perfect sense. It was almost the same as the, the Holy Trinity of Star Trek, that you had Kirk, Spock, and McCoy forming one aspect of a whole uh, character that you had that uh, uh, Ray, was, Ray was the the heart of the problem, uh, Egon was the brain, uh, Venkman was the mouth, and Winston actually did things with uh, the equipment, and he was common sense. Uh, and right. He was underrated very much. I always huh. pictured that if we did a sequel with the characters, Winston would be running the operation and all the franchises while the rest of the the team were admirals, uh, you know, in, in, in corporate offices doing, you know, uh, just, just like the paperwork and, and stuff. But Winston would be the one actually continuing to do actual work. Mm-hmm. That's cool. See,
5: that's what I liked about the new one was the characterizations were so much more clear. Everybody was kind of more fleshed out. They were full characters unto themselves. I felt.
1: Agreed. Let's talk about those guys. Um, that's a great segue from, from old to the new. What'd you guys, and, and go ahead and, and expound on that. What, what was it? A, what did you like about the uh, quartet of these characters that made them better than the original?
0: Well, I liked that they actually had lives. They actually had personalities. You know, we we got to see a very one-dimensional view of the original Ghostbusters, and in this incarnation of them, you know, we got to see that they were more than just, you know. Uh, um, for the sake of argument, Melissa McCarthy's character, Abby Yates, she was more than just snappy comebacks and smarminess, you know? Um, And I thought that was fantastic.
2: I also, I think I also like the fact that they, the characters, okay, we had Abby and Aaron who had history um, and, and there was obviously unresolved issues in their friendship uh, and Abby, you know, the, the different, the different levels of that, and then you, you throw in characters like Holtzman who just you know blew me away from the first moment we met her. And then later with Patty. The thing about Patty, and I think the reason she became my favorite, because I love Holtzman, don't get me wrong. But the reason Patty was my favorite is when we first meet Patty, she's sitting there working in her booth, she has a smile for everybody, she's trying to, you know, she's being pleasant to everyone, and not everybody's being pleasant back, but you can see, this is a woman who's like, I'm making the best of what I have in life, I am a happy person, I'm going to be happy whether you like it or not, mm-hmm. and then she gets thrown into this world, and, and she says all the things we're thinking. Absolutely. But, yeah, she
5: was a great vehicle for that.
2: Yes, and I think that was what I loved about her and then giving us that that she cheat to me was almost the the access point for the audience. Mm-hmm. This is who we would all be if we were walking into this situation
0: i th- I think you're right about that. I think that I think that Leslie Jones was perfect in the role. Uh, I think Patty's character uh, was the every person. And I think that she is the accessibility point, like you said, absolutely.
5: see, I would argue that, They were all accessibility points, depending on who you are and what kind of personality you are. So, for instance, if you were the awkward one who's always trying to fit in, I really think that Aaron was a beautiful character for you to ride in on. Um, If you were very scientifically minded, but awkward and socially have social anxiety issues, I think, you know, Holtzman was a great vehicle in. And of the same token, Patty was, you know, kind of for an umbrella character who covered just about anybody else who didn't find the other ones accessible. You could come in, you know, with Patty and still find a place into the Ghostbusters team yourself. I'll agree
2: with
5: that. Yeah,
4: I, I really, I, I agree with uh, what everybody was saying about uh, Leslie Jones. I thought uh, she was like the clear standout in my mind of um, just somebody I could relate to. She kind of even, even Winston from the old one. He kind of he shows up after the montage to like you know bring the audience up to speed. You know. He's the straight character as to you know what's happening, mm-hmm. so we can all relate to that. You know, it really brings us all in. But I, I really had trouble uh, kind of telling Aaron and uh, I have to look up the names uh, Aaron and Abby. Uh, at first, you know, there's a very clear divide of their characters, but then like it, they they sort of like morph like into like a hybrid of like I guess if we're using the old old people, the Ray and Egon so like i i just i had trouble i i guess because they shared the same goal um i had trouble telling them apart about how actually, to the movie i
2: would i would argue that in some ways they did share the same goals but i think part of that i think part of that for me for their journey was that we're coming at them at a time when they're apart so you know aaron's off trying to be get tenure. She's going to be a physicist. She's going to do all of this. I'm, I'm, I'm on the straight and narrow. I'm, I'm going into this, this male ceiling world. And I, I have to keep everything in this very neat little box and nothing can step outside of that box, no matter what my history is. Whereas when she was initially working with Abby and when they wrote that book, they were very much on the same page, but then Erin changed her goal and left. And and so I think when Erin comes back and starts working with them again, she and Abby unite in having that same goal once more.
0: Yeah, that was actually kind of the way that I saw it, too, was that we're looking at what drew these people together to begin with. And so they are of a sort two peas in a pod, but they're actually you know really two different sides of the same coin. One of them's a little more straight-laced than the other one but I feel like they work very well together.
1: True. Yeah, I, I see yeah. what Chris is yeah. saying in that you know, once their main conflict was resolved, there were a lot of similarities. I, I did get a, an odd couple kind of feel from the two. That one was very straight and awkward, and the other one was, was pretty much let it all hang out. But they, they did have the same kind of voice when they spoke to each other, and I think that, that might be where where I saw the similarities. They, they, when they were together, they became almost one half of each other's brains. Yeah, that's an inter- interesting way to... Yeah. They, they were meant to function as a team, as a unit, and they were lost without each other. Oh,
5: I like mean? that. Yeah, I like how you phrased that. Yeah, they really did save each other.
0: That's why you get the big bucks, isn't it, Jay? Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: well, well, and didn't you also... I mean, Abby was never... Abby does not ever come across to me at any point in this as ever being ashamed or upset about what it is she's doing and what she believes and what she's been working towards, whereas Aaron had to reconcile the idea that she was weird and she didn't really want to be weird.
1: That's true. And and I think everything we're saying here goes back to Scott's point and something I was thinking about as you guys were talking is that the original Ghostbusters was based on Second City, Saturday Night Live-driven 70s comedy, Mm. where the joke drives the, the drama, where in this case, the drama is driving the jokes and the choices that they're making. And it seems like Paul Feig is making more intelligent choices in terms of the humor. And it's, it, in my opinion, it's it's funnier than the original, which might be sacrilege to the, my 13-year-old self, but I really think it is. What do you guys think? Is really?
5: I agree. I
0: I disagree. I think <laughs> it's a different kind of humor.
1: I yeah, think okay. it's a different that,
0: kind
2: of humor. I think not- from, from my child self... I, I I laughed all the way through Ghostbusters, even when I was scared. And this one, I found the humor to be both intelligent and okay. Let me back this up one step. The original Ghostbusters, especially with the original Saturday Night Live and all of that, feeling a lot of gross humor was was the gross humor was the big thing. And I have never been a fan of gross humor.
5: Mm-hmm. Fart
2: jokes, I mean, one fart joke here or there, fine. But when you do a lot of fart jokes, no, not my thing. That said. They had a combination of humor in this one. I thought there there was there, there was there was some humor that was a little more you know high level. There was humor that was very physical in their comedy. That you know uh, Chris Hemsworth was totally comic relief all the way through it. Even when he didn't but, need to be, he was comic but, relief. But every character was comic relief. Yeah, like, to a all, point. Like, it, it, like everybody
4: was trying to be the funny one. Like that, that 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 was part of the problem I had with this kind of comedy or is it it reminded me like of a, a Judd Apatow kind of script where he just lets the camera just keep rolling and like the actors just keep talking and like it, it like several points it just you could almost tell like when they were going off script and just just you just wanted the punchline to end like anybody else get that feeling
2: not for me
0: like, really? I didn't I didn't
2: I never
4: I really looked want at
0: my, to
5: support you, but no. <laughs> no, I didn't look at
2: my. watch. I always judge a movie, whether it, no matter what it is, um, as far as my enjoyment level. With how often do I look at my watch? Because that usually tells me if I notice the t- passage of time. There's something off in the pacing, and the only time I looked at my watch in that whole film was during one of the scenes in the. Uh, uh, when the when the ghost. Spews everything all over them when they find the ghost in the big house. Um, even though I thought the the scene was really funny leading up into it, when she even said she even got the stuff in like her underwear and all that other stuff, that was the only time in the whole movie I looked at my watch. Hmm. Once once Patty hit the scene for me, it was like that movie just everything gelled together and it flowed.
1: Hmm. Oh. I got a hmm, Chris, what? <laughs> Yeah, I'm just thinking.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All, right.
0: All right. Well, well for me, the pacing worked. Um, and and I, when I go in to see a movie, I go into it, you know, it, the first viewing is to whether or not I am entertained. Second viewing of it is where I start picking it apart. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I mean, with the second viewing of it, uh, the writer in me, You know, rears his ugly head
2: and starts saying,
0: okay, there's a plot hole here, there's a plot hole there, here a plot hole there, a plot hole everywhere, a plot hole. But from a purely entertainment point of view of it and for pure enjoyment of it, I thought the humor in this was more cerebral than it was in the original. And let me just point out the original you know, 13-year-old 13 13 year me loved, loved, loved the Ghostbusters, and I still do. I own copies of it, and I watch it every year, which means I've seen it far too many times for it to be healthy. But um, when I watched this one, you know, you first off, you have to accept, okay, this is a different take on it. This is a different version of it. And a lot of the humor that's in it goes deeper. Than the original did. So I don't think it's a question of which one is funnier. I think it's a question of different types of humor.
4: Yes. I guess that, that, that's probably the problem I had with it. Because I, I went into it expecting the old humor. And so when I got like this this different take on it, almost a comment on the old movie, it kind of threw me.
2: See, I didn't take it as a comment on the old movie. I'll be honest; one of the I know that a lot of people and and even I had my some some concerns about the whole idea that they were quote remaking Ghostbusters. Um, the words remake and reboot, I, I really I'm starting to look at them as like four letter words. Yeah.
0: Because. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Now it can be done right, and has been done right. I've seen it done very, very, very well. But the number of times it's been done to the point where I go, "Yes, that was awesome," um, is far lower. Then the number of times I've gone. Really, can you guys not come up with at least one original idea? And I think, for me at least, watching this, um, the the this update, this this Ghostbusters version, you know, it's not the 1980s Ghostbusters. It pays homage to it. It makes a lot of nods. It says, you know, it it tells you very clearly through the storytelling, it would not be here if we hadn't had that movie in 1984. Yeah, but it's its own thing.
5: It but, was like a love letter to the fans, as you might have said. Um, yes. Because, and there was so much ethos and pathos, I thought, like, I emotionally connected with a lot of the characters, and I actually was concerned, like, about their outcomes, and I thought it was really interesting that they managed to do that without any romantic elements needed to tie the plot together, because in the first one, we, you know, had Sigourney Reaver and clear romantic elements in the plot line itself, um, even if their relationship wasn't entirely fleshed out in an emotional level, whereas this one didn't even require that, but I still cared about everybody, and I wanted to see them make it through to the end of the day and, you know, become a cohesive team.
1: True. So, uh, the question has been asked in, in on the internet. We've talked a little bit about men's humor, which, which applied to the eighty-four movie. Is the new movie chick humor? Yes and no. Okay, I'll, I'll be.
2: On, I, I think it's a mixture. And I don't
0: is, think it's chick humor.
1: No, and is that, that humor deeper? Is is humor based cute. on those? Yeah, that's divisive language. It is like yeah,
4: I don't I I don't it I don't think you can divide humor like that though
1: can you? Well, I mean, if if we talk about Judd Apatow and and uh, Seth Rogen type humor as clearly frat brothers humor or the humor that was prevalent through the seventies and eighties, okay, uh, is this is this just more contemporary humor? Is that Okay. okay?
0: I think I think more contemporary is a better term for it than chick humor, because I think chick humor minimalizes not only what it is, but who it's meant for.
5: Uh-huh. The ones who were going to go see this, you know, likely understood the original Ghostbusters mythology, the fanverse. They understood all of that. So going into it, they didn't have to worry that you would get the jokes. They didn't have to worry about you not understanding, you know, what a proton proton pack was, because a lot of that was introduced. Yes, they reintroduced it in different ways. But they did. They didn't underestimate our intelligence when they were writing the jokes.
0: Well, and another thing, and another thing is that uh, in 1984, society, the uh, social constructs were very different. Like in 1984, Peter Venkman was funny because he continually hit on Dana Barrett. Yes. And today, he so is creepy. a rapey. He's a rapey, <laughs> creepy guy. You know. Yeah. So yeah. you know, and at the time, at the, during the time period in 1984, you know, women were not offended by that. Or if they were they didn't say anything it was considered okay that's a joke that's funny now if we had the same character in a movie everybody men included would cringe at all of the rapey weird creepy yeah. things that peter vinkman does in the movie well,
2: i think they turned it on its head a little bit because they had aaron Following Chris Hemsworth around, just like, oh, he's so pretty, and oh, I just want to touch him. And she kept, you know, she was very inappropriate in how she kept trying to manhandle him. She
0: was, and I actually thought of that as more of a statement. Because women have had to have, women have had to put up with characters, uh, uh, with female characters portrayed like that for as long as there have been movies. I mean, and to have Chris Hemsworth, and by the way, I just have to say this, Chris Hemsworth owned that role. He was
5: yes, absolutely
0: committed and was not afraid to look like an absolute idiot. And we I loved that talking, about him.
2: Virg and I were talking about that earlier. One of the things that I had said is that I know a lot of people were, there There has been some comments here and there, and I've read them on the internet, people were offended by the idea that you had Chris Hemsworth playing this brainless, basically piece of meat that everybody can ogle and, and you know, that there's been some little hue and cry about that, and other people are going, yes, but women have lived with that kind of role for years, and we've always had to put up with seeing women in that that role of the cheesecake or the arm candy. On the other hand, taking all of the social commentary aside, Chris Hemsworth was hysterical. Absolutely. I mean, the, the the fact that he could deliver a scene and be looking right at the the you know, whoever he was playing off of and have that completely vapid, empty expression in his <laughs> eyes going on. And, and having seen him in multiple roles now, yeah, that's definitely him
0: acting. So Did you actually stay through the credits and watch I, the dance I laughed scene?
2: and laughed and laughed my, my husband my husband okay, I have funny yes. story just as a side note. This is a in the weeks leading up to the release of this movie, my husband was very anti uh, he he hates the idea of Oh, they remade it with women just so it can be made for women I don't see the point of this, blah, 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 blah. He was really – and he, he's not a big fan of Melissa McCarthy. He loved her, Suki and Gilmore Girls, but he has not liked a lot of the, the more body humor or the, 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 you know, the gross jokes. He's not a big fan of that. Now, all of this said, while I was out of town last week, he went and saw Ghostbusters with his mom when I wasn't home. And I made much fun of him about this because I'm like, wait, you're going to see this without me. But I said, so, and he's like, well, yeah. And I'm like, okay, but so if you do go see it, I want to know what you honestly think. And he will tell you that he walked into this movie sit and sat down perfectly ready to totally eviscerate the film from beginning to end because he was prepared to hate it. He walked <laughs> out laughing his ass off and he calls me and tells me it was one of the funniest things he's seen in forever and he loved it and he was perfectly willing to admit he was wrong. And so he insisted that as soon as I got home, we had to go see it. And he kept saying, no, can't leave. you got to see all the credits. Because this part was just for you because Chris dancing. And I was like, yes. I said, totally hire Kevin just to look at it. I freely admit it. I would totally hire Kevin. And yes, I would take away his phone and not tell him that I had turned it off. But I did. Hemsworth did a brilliant job with that. And yeah. he was his st- and 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 I think what Vergie said, Leslie Jones was the one who commented that he's that good looking and he's that talented. It's really and now he's funny. it's really not fair. <laughs> yes.
0: See, and I thought see, and that's one of the things that i that I really enjoyed about this movie that I also enjoyed about the first one is the complete commitment that the characters had that the actors had to the characters. Leslie Jones was not afraid at all. I mean, some very brave performances in this because I mean, look at the look at the performances. There was some real room to look very foolish in every one of the scenes. And every one of the actors just said, let's do this. They jumped in, both feet, and it was wonderful. (coughs) Cool.
5: Yes? Yes.
4: What's
5: that, (laughs) <laughs> no,
4: I, I I understand like what I, I understand like the appeal. I understand why people love this, you know. And I walked out of the theater smiling. So I mean, like I think everybody like kind of did their best. But uh, the more like I thought about it, like somebody mentioned like a love letter to the fans, and like having like there, there's two things about that statement that kind of stand out to me. Like the first is like they they redefine the science of ghost busting at the end like ghosts like, by the end of the movie ghosts they're no longer you don't need to trap them you need to like beat them into submission and like and the second part of that is having the villain be the actual logo of the film um, which is kinda, <laughs> like I, I it, it just both of those things like coming together at the end which kind of threw me like, and it made me ask: Like, what is like Paul Fig? Is that how you say it? Fig, Fig. I don't know. Like, what is he trying okay. to say with this? Yeah, and I, I don't know. It just made me pause. Like, I don't know if it that was such a loving see, thing to I, I, see I, the audience.
2: I thought the logo, being the go- big ghost at the end, to me was a, a a very very open nod to the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, which or oh, whatever he was,
0: well, or Tidy Whitey that. dude.
2: I considered the,
0: the, the stay puff marshmallow man cameo in there with the uh, with yeah. the big balloon. I yeah. thought yes. that was I thought that, that was, was pretty darn funny myself. Yeah, those. Yeah. yeah.
1: Which I thought was a sufficient nod to that character enough in in the film.
0: So um, then
1: what do we do with the logo at the end though? Well, that uh, you, you bring up a good point, Chris, which has been echoed by other critics. The third act of this movie is considered his, the action part of the film to be the weakest part. Is that something you agree with or do you think he pulled that off? pretty well well i i agree
4: that if if you think you pull it off like it it violates just the world building the science that were established in the first two movies so i mean if you if you're gonna remake it you're redefining it at this point and that it bothered me as a fan of the original i guess
0: see to me whenever you remake something or you reimagine or reboot Mm -hmm. uh you're automatically going to be doing that. You're automatically going to be making it your own, rebuilding it as as uh, in a way that in a way that works for your vision of it. So I didn't really have a problem with that.
4: Well, what? i oh, sorry. Go ahead. But well, why? Why did they trap? Like, but they had to trap a ghost at one point. Like, I guess I wanted it to be consistent. Like, they had to trap the the ghost at the.
0: The well, they trapped concert. it. They trapped it because they wanted to study it, and I got that. I understood okay. that. Okay. Uh, okay. What I was curious about, and it was something that I addressed. That that I was also curious about in the first movie was okay. So they built a laser containment unit. Mm-hmm. That's a finite amount of space. Mm-hmm. How much are they going to be able to cram in there? So to me. They hadn't even thought of a containment unit unit yet in this one. The characters hadn't thought of a containment unit yet. They were still at, we need to look at this and study it phase. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and then, then you- when they do create, when they did create a laser containment unit for it, or any kind of containment unit for it, where in the hell would they put it? You know? I mean, in the original movie, it was basically stuck into a wall in the firehouse. Okay. What was behind that wall? How did that work? How much space was back there? And whose idea was it to put an exploding laser containment unit behind a wall with substandard wiring? You know, So we look at the new one, and they're above the sandwich shop or the Chinese shop or whatever it was. We look at the new one, and I don't think the characters were even thinking about catching and detaining them indefinitely. I think all they wanted to do was catch it so they could study it.
5: Yeah, and I think the mythology to me, um, and here's how I made logical sense of it, this may or may not be accurate to the writer's vision. However, I thought the reason that they beat them to submission was the only reason those ghosts were able to come active and be class 4 vapors, as they called them, or greater, was because the ley lines were activated, and they therefore were given additional power that they normally wouldn't have. So by beating them to submission, they removed that additional power, and insofar as trapping them, you know, that vortex thing they made... um, trapped the ones that needed to be trapped and the other ones that they'd beaten in submission lost whatever additional energy they'd picked up so i think if energy is not feeding into the ghosts per this mythology um then they are therefore no longer you know dangerous and or visible on our plane
4: huh i could be wrong but no that i just that makes perfect sense i wish the movie would have made that
1: more clear
5: I only saw it once, so like I said, I entirely yeah. could have but that was kind of where I took the
1: science <laughs> in my head. <laughs> I think you're right, and, and I think a lot of that stuff comes out in more detail in the novels, which will be interesting to hear reviews of in the future. I think they spend a lot more time on the tech and, and the behind-the-scenes stuff there uh, that you don't want to slow down the audience. I think um, Dan Aykroyd spent a lot of time with techno-geek stuff in the mm. first film, which sort of slowed things down, but did make more sense. And I think we said said earlier, we're not going to dumb it down for the viewer. We're just going to tell you the story, and you'll figure it out later.
0: Right.
5: Speaking of Dan Aykroyd, that Mm. had to have been my favorite cameo in the entire movie of the original cast. Not mine. Not mine. (laughs) I loved it.
0: My favorite cameo was Harold Ramis.
5: Oh, Oh,
0: that,
2: that actually made me tear up.
0: That actually made me tear up, too. I saw Harold Ramis' bust in that hallway, yeah, and I damn near started crying. It was amazing to see Egon. It was amazing to see Harold Ramis as a, I mean, the character of Egon as a bust that, to me, said respect. Yeah. And, you know, because, I mean, if you think about it just going from the point of view of the characters, what was it that the characters wanted the most in the first movie? And it was respect. It was Mm -hmm. academic respect. It was respect from their peers. And so what do we see in this movie? There's a bust of Egon Spangler in the halls of a college. That would be the greatest compliment that that man, that character could ever receive. So that that really kind of gave me such warm, fuzzy feelings. It was just incredible mm-hmm. to see it.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah. Murray gets thrown out a window, so that what does that say about his character?
3: <laughs> I think the
4: only way they could get him in the movie is if he agreed. He's like, Okay, I'll come in, I'll sit in this chair. <laughs> I think that's the only way they could get Bill Murray to the set,
2: probably.
0: Well, and it's interesting that everybody had a cameo with one exception. And yeah, that was Rickness.
2: I, I was looking for Rick and we never saw him in it. And I was, wasn't sure why. He's like well, out of movies though, like all together
0: Well actually I read an interview with him Where he stated that the reason He didn't do it was because he didn't feel That he could add anything new to the character He said "Been there done that He said Ben there done that and he didn't want to Go back to the well Again as it were
5: Fair enough I See, what like I liked this. about Ackroyd's was that he was self-aware. Like, he specifically said, he's like, this: these are only class 4 vapors. Yeah. Like, they didn't, it was almost like as if we were not living in an alternative universe where, you know, Ghostbusters hadn't happened yet. It was more that no one here knew about it. It maybe had happened, and they just know about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you know what was interesting is I was getting mad throughout the whole movie when I was seeing all of these cameos. And I honestly thought they were going to leave Ernie Hudson out of it. Because, I mean, he's <laughs> largely the forgotten Ghostbuster.
2: I actually was expecting him from the moment she mentioned her uncle.
0: Yeah. Me too. I was not. And when he I stepped out of that thing, I cheered.
2: Yeah. I actually, from the moment she mentioned she got the car from her uncle, I kept wondering if her uncle would turn out to be, you know, Winston. And I was going, so I waited. And, and yeah, that was, that was a neat kick. And I did. I love Dan Aykroyd's I Ain't Afraid of No Ghosts, you know. Basically, yeah. that was...
0: And Sigourney Weavers at the end. Uh, that was weird. Uh, that was so cool. And to have her as
1: Holtzman's <laughs> mentor, that that was perfect, I think.
0: Holtzman that was, needed that, that mentor. Beautiful. It's too bad and because I whole, don't think they can bring the whole, her back. And the whole safety safeties are for dudes. That was <laughs> hilarious. <laughs>
2: Well, and Sigourney, the fun thing about Sigourney Weaver, and I think the reason it really fit to have her be Holtzman's mentor is her cameo, is that she's been defying conventions from the beginning.
5: Yeah, Absolutely, she was, one,
2: she was one of the first female action heroes, as it were, mm-hmm. with Aliens, and even with you know her part in in Ghostbusters. You know, you, you can say that she was too. You know, she was. Uh, Venkman's object, you know, de lust, but she was also a, a, a possession instrument. She was also someone who fought back, um, but she kept trying to take her life back. So I, I just, I don't know, I loved that. I thought that was a really nice nod, not only to the character, but also to the actress.
5: And she was still a strong, intelligent woman, even as Venkman's love interest, um, which I liked about the original, and then to have her hanging out with Holtzman who I thought was a really strong female character, you know, proved that smart could be still sexy and fun. I, I love that.
2: And dangerous. I'm going to be honest with you. Holtzman was dangerous. Very dangerous.
5: <laughs> she was crazy. I loved it. Mad scientist. She was, I loved that character.
1: I know we haven't had a chance to talk about Holtzman, and she's an amazing character. We're going to be doing a whole different show on Holtzman and social implications of the the different Ghostbusters characters. But I want to wrap this up by asking each of you, Again, make a case for your favorite character and what was your favorite moment in the film? We'll okay, start can I with, jump in? Uh,
4: I got oh. it.
1: Chris, you want to jump in? Yeah, I know it. Um,
4: <laughs> well, favorite okay, character, I assume you mean Ghostbuster. Or whatever. Okay, because uh, uh, favorite moment and favorite Ghostbuster are two different things. Uh, but favorite Ghostbuster was by far the... Uh, Patty? Wait... Yes, Patty, uh, Leslie Jones, uh, just because I could relate to her the most. Uh, I enjoyed all the other ones. I think, you know, everybody did an excellent job with the material they were given. Um, but the, my favorite moment, hands down, is Andy Garcia's line um, when he slaps the table and says, Don't ever compare me to the Marin Jaws. <laughs> um that just like it's like he said it in such a way that just like it's something that happens to him like on a daily basis maybe or just like he's just ready for it like i don't know that i just lost like, i lost it when that happened that was my favorite moment <laughs> how about you
1: scott
0: uh, i think my favorite character's in this, it's it's clearly a toss-up between Holtzman and Patty. Yeah. Uh, Holtzman because she is just so completely out there and so completely mad science and Patty because she is so hilariously funny and deadpan mm. in several cases. Uh, I think my f- favorite scene, the one that the, I, I almost needed oxygen. I was almost taken out of the theater for for because I couldn't stop laughing, uh, was the scene where the demon landed on Patty's shoulders, and she said, "No, don't tell me, it's good. I'm just gonna go home now. And <laughs> I could not stop laughing. I thought it was the funniest damn thing I'd seen, you know, since Deadpool. So um, wow, yeah, those would be my two wow. favorite characters and my favorite part. How about mm-hmm. you, Verge?
5: I am deeply, deeply, deeply in love with Holtzman. Um, (laughs) she is possibly one of my favorite characters in any media right now, just because I I loved her intelligence. I loved her wit. I loved the fact that she was so beautifully awkward and uncomfortable in situations. Like when she did her touching, you know, kind of hug you speech with when they were having drinks. I, I, she was just so great. And I loved her toys and the way she, you know, introduced her toys to them. Like these are these really brilliant pieces of science that no one's ever put together, you know, and a Faraday cage. Um, and she's just sort of completely excited. Like, they're toys. Like, they're just fun for her. And the fact that she loved the science that much and did find it so fun, and then on top of that was such an interesting character, that was what I loved. I just thought she was great on a lot of levels. Cool.
1: Heather?
2: Okay, well, I have, uh, I-, I will <coughs> say, Patty was my favorite, hands down. Um, I love Toltzman. I love them all. I- 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 as, an- as ensembles go, I love them all but but for me patty and 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 the moment patty cemented herself for me forever in a day will be as they're walking through and they're searching and she does you know, she's doing the whole thing i thought this would be like a book club type of thing you know i had a great job at the mta why did i leave my job for this and then she walks into that room with all the mannequins looks in that room and goes i just walked into a room full of nightmares
3: <laughs> you know, I, I,
2: I think I peed myself a little. I was laughing <laughs> because, seriously, yes. And anybody who's a Doctor Who fan, yeah, mannequins—that's definitely a room full of nightmares right there. <laughs> and and it just, I loved her. I loved everything about her performance. I loved what she brought to the team. And you know that that again, the deadpan humor, the, the way she she would just leap right in and deal with stuff was Mm -hmm. was funny but yeah i'm never going to forget the mannequin scene that that one's definitely going down in the annals
1: for me it was bad. cool well i can't believe we filled an hour and we haven't even scratched the surface of this film it's clearly a a lot deeper than its original source material there's a lot to talk about um and we'll be covering those in additional episodes before we go though i want to allow each of you to to let people know where they can find you your latest book your latest project uh verge can we start with you
5: Sure. Uh, my name is Virginia Nelson I'm a USA Today best-selling author You can find more out about me at my website www.virg-nelson.com um, And a couple of my most recent projects Of course was Penthouse Prince And uh, as you mentioned the Odd Stuff series Cool How about you Chris? Oh <sighs> uh,
1: If people want to Take a good question mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> uh, people want to find me they can find me at chris phillips author.com uh, i have a poem in this month's issue of uh, apex magazine which i'm pretty proud of and i think in november i have a story coming out in igms that should be lots of fun so that's that's on the horizon cool how about you heather
2: Ah, I'm Heather Long. You can find out more about me at heatherlong.net. Um, spelled exactly how it sounds, Heather Long, L-O-N-G. Um, let's see, And uh, my most recent releases are, are Snow Wolf, which is the ninth book in my Wolves of Willow Bend series. And then I'm really excited about uh, The Judas Contact, which is coming out in August for my Boomer series, which is Superheroes. So I, I'm going to have a lot of fun with that.
1: Finally, Scott... Oh.
0: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Scott Johnson, and uh, you can find me at creepylittlebastard.com dot <laughs> com. Um, my, uh, you can find out anything you want to find out about me there. I write horror novels. I write true ghost stories, and I'm currently working on a bunch of stuff that I've sent to my agent. So stay tuned.
2: Very oh, cool, Scott. You win for best website name.
1: All right. Thanks, all four of you, for uh, joining me for an hour of the conversation. Um, And if you're listening, please feel free to drop comments or concerns or your outrage, and we'll be happy (laughs) to get back to you as soon as we care to. Thanks again, and take care.
3: Radio Goes area, is a production of 3015 North Studios, and is a fan production subject to the Goodwill of Ghost Core. This is Ivo Shandor, speaking from beyond the grave. Deep. Special gratitude to Sony Pictures Entertainment, Ghost Core, Ray Parker Jr., and Gozer the Gozerian. Death is but a door. Time is but a window. We shall return.